Belief in our mortality, the sense that we are eventually going to crack up and be extinguished like the flame of a candle, I say, is a gloriously fine thing. It makes us sober. It makes us a little sad. And many of us, it makes poetic. But above all, it makes it possible for us to make up our mind and arrange to live sensibly, truthfully, and always with the sense of our own limitations. It gives us peace, also, because true peace of mind comes from accepting the worst. Psychologically, I think, it means a release of energy. When Chinese poets and common people enjoy themselves, there is always a subconscious feeling that the joy is not going to last forever. As the Chinese often say at the end of a happy reunion, even the most gorgeous fair with matte sheds stretching over a thousand miles must sooner or later come to an end. The feast of life is the feast of Nebuchadnezzar. This feeling of the dreamlike quality of our existence invests the pagan with a kind of spirituality. He sees life essentially as a sung landscape artist sees mountain scenery, enveloped in a haze of mystery, sometimes with the air dripping with moisture. Deprived of immortality, the proposition of living becomes a simple proposition. It is this, that we human beings have a limited span of life to live on this earth, rarely more than 70 years, and that therefore we have to arrange our lives so that we may live as happily as we can under a given set of circumstances. Here, we are on Confucian ground. There is something mundane, something terribly earthbound about it, and man proceeds to work with a dogged common sense very much in the spirit of what George Santayana calls animal faith. With this animal faith, taking life as it is, we made a shrewd guess without Darwin's aid as to our essential kinship with animals. It made us therefore cling to life, the life of the instinct and the life of senses, on the belief that, as we are all animals, we can be truly happy only when all our normal instincts are satisfied normally. This applies to the enjoyment of life in all its aspects. End quote. Lin Yutang, The Importance of Living Lena, in her classroom at Johns Hopkins, sitting a little uncomfortably, lecturing monotonically, he left her mid-sentence. Over, Over the, the course, course of the, the next, next term, term we, we will be closely examining cancer cells in vitro and discussing autophagic activity. The script puts us next, exterior Johns Hopkins Medical School slash campus, day, but while we are no longer within a classroom, we are still indoors, second three. This is the Sun Park office campus in Camberley, seen recently also as the headquarters of Oasis in Ready Player One. Lena, Natalie Portman, is coming down the stairs from the third floor, even though her classroom was on the ground floor. Katie, Sinoya Mizuno, follows close behind. In the foreground, on the second floor, is Daniel, David Yassi. Katie, Professor. Second five, angle past Lena and Katie on Daniel. He watches. Lena does not stop walking. Lena. Hey, Katie. Katie. They walk down out of the left side of frame as Daniel remains in frame. He walks toward camera. Katie. I read the John Silston paper last night. Their voices trail off as the angle changes back to the previous one behind Daniel, second eight, when he heads for the stairs and starts down after the two of them. Katie continued off screen. I still feel like I'm not working hard enough. I'm behind the other students. They find everything easier. Lena. Off screen. You aren't, and they don't. Okay? As he tries to catch up, let us step sideways to Professor Sir John Solston, founding director of the Sanger Center, 1992-2000, to when the working draft of the human genome sequence was completed. A self-confessed nerd-turned-hippie, according to his bio on yourgenome.org, 
Solston was born 27th March 1942. His father was an army chaplain, his mother an English teacher. He completed his undergraduate degree in organic chemistry at Pembroke College, Cambridge in 1963. He went on to a PhD on nucleotide chemistry at the University of Cambridge. In 1992, he shared the Nobel Prize for Physiology with fellow researchers Sidney Brenner and Robert Horvitz for their work mapping the cellular development of a nematode. Meanwhile, the Human Genome Project was beginning in the U.S., and Solston was instrumental in bringing it as well to the U.K. Andrew Brown details some of Solston's major research for The Guardian, 9th October 2002, including the following, quote, The textbooks claim that worms hatched with all the cells they would ever need. Solston, patiently counting, discovered that one part of the newly hatched larva had only 15 nerve cells, whereas the adult had 57. So he placed a larva worm on a little dab of bacteria so that it would not wriggle too far from food, for the worms are interested only in food and sex, since most of them are hermaphrodites, they don't have to move to breathe. Then he settled down to watch the innards of the transparent worm developing. Soon enough, ten new nerve cells swam into his ken. He was so excited that he took the worm and microscope home, wanting to watch it develop all weekend. But in the small hours of the morning, he realized he just could not stay awake anymore. He popped a dish of worms in the fridge, and resumed their study in the morning. By the end of the weekend, he was able to tell his colleagues two things. That he had traced the development of the worm's ventral nerve cord, and that the best place in the fridge for worms was just under the lettuce in the vegetable cooler. He had also become the first man in history to trace in a living animal the ways in which cells move and sometimes die under instructions from their genes. This knowledge is fundamental to understanding cancers, as well as the normal growth of an animal, and the discoveries that followed from his observation have won him his share of the Nobel Prize. Within two years, Solston and two colleagues had mapped the lineage of every cell in the adult worm, so they could tell precisely how it grew from the moment of hatching. But it was the next stage of his labors that really made his name as a scientist and got him his fellowship of the Royal Society. Because the worm is transparent, it is possible to watch the embryos as they grow inside transparent eggs. It is just fiendishly difficult. A German team had tried for years to capture it with the help of computers and high-speed video cameras, but they were getting nowhere, and in the early 80s, Silston decided to carry out by hand, with almost superhuman concentration, the task that had defeated the finest machines of the time. He mounted a gossamer crosshair over the end of his microscope, placed a worm beneath, and watched the embryo developing inside it. It took him 18 months, hunched over the microscope in two four-hour shifts a day. But at the end, he had tracked every cell that was born and died in the 14 hours that a worm's egg is growing. It was work that demanded a level of detail and patience that had simply been thought impossible until Solston did it. By choosing one cell at a time and watching it as it grew and divided, drawing the results in small, neat, colored circles on paper beside the microscope, he made a complete map through time and space of the development of a worm. At every stage, the growth of the worm involves cells dividing or dying, just as it does in any living thing. And Solston had mapped every single cell, so he knew where it had come from and what it would change into. This could not be done, even in principle, with anything much more complex than the worm because most animals change unpredictably as they grow or learn. But the worm is quite invariant. Every normal worm is an exact clone of every other one, and grows in almost exactly the same way. This makes it an extraordinarily useful animal for scientists. End quote. The nematode genome mapping was completed after over 12 years of work in 1998. Solson received his knighthood in 2001, became a chair of Manchester University's Institute for Science, Ethics, and Innovation in 2007, and was made a Companion of Honor in 2017. 
He died 6th March 2018, aged 75 years. This exchange does not happen in the script, but it also barely happens here. It's hard to make out most of what is said. Sonoya Mizuno and Alex Garland are friends, so this moment may have been added so she could get some screen time where we might actually see her face and hear her voice. Her role later in the film will not allow for that. In the script, a man in his 40s jogs up to her, Daniel Maitland. Robert Maitland is the main character in J.G. Ballard's Concrete Island. Daniel is played by David Gyasi. Full name, David Kwaku Asamoah Gyasi, born 2nd January 1980 in Hammersmith, London. He has 44 acting credits on IMDb, including Cloud Atlas, Interstellar, and the television series Containment. Second 14, angle on bottom of stairs. Lena separates from Katie. Daniel. Lena! Katie heads to the left, Lena to the right. Lena turns in second 16, angle on Lena. Lena. Dan! The script says Lena doesn't break stride, so he falls in beside her, but she stops in the film. Daniel comes into frame in the foreground. She takes a few steps toward him to stand close, like actors do in movies, but hardly anyone does in real life. Daniel. I've been looking for you at lunch, but you've never seen me around. Lena. I've been catching up on some writing. Second 25, angle on Daniel from behind Lena. Daniel. All work and no play. Not healthy. Second 28, reverse on Lena from behind Daniel. Daniel takes his glasses off after a brief but awkward silence. Daniel continued. I wanted to ask. ask, Do you have plans plans Saturday? Saturday? In the script, she says... Saturday. Second 33, angle on Daniel. Daniel. Sarah, Sarah and I, I have a few people, people over. Garden, garden party, party while the weather, weather holds. In the script, Lena gives a neutral frown of someone prepping a polite excuse. Lena, you mean this Saturday? Daniel, yes. Angle on Lena. Lena, actually, actually I do, I have, plans. do have plans. Angle on Daniel. Daniel, I, I think, think it'll, it'll be a lot, lot of fun. fun. In the script, he says, are you sure? I think it'll be a lot of fun. We've asked Amir and Jenny and Angle and Lena. Lena cuts in. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Dan. I really appreciate it, it but I'm, I'm going, going to paint our bedroom. bedroom. Lena corrects herself immediately. Lena, continue. The, the bedroom. bedroom. At this point, as far as we know, the bedroom used to be shared by Lena and Daniel, which is not entirely wrong. But the hour in this scenario is Lena and Kane, not Lena and Daniel. She offers a half-hearted smile. Daniel looks at Lena. He nods, looks away. Daniel. It's been a year, Lena. He looks at her. Angle on Lena. Angle on Daniel. Daniel, continue. You're You're allowed allowed to come come to a barbecue. Daniel reaches out and catches Lena's arm and stops her, the script says. But of course, she has already stopped in the thumb. He moves even closer to her. Daniel. It is not not a betrayal or... or Daniel is cut off. This time runs out for this minute. We spoke. What was it we said? Wordlessly watching, he waits by the window and wonders at the empty place inside.
creation is all we are. Annihilation. <laughs>